people would say you've reached a pinnacle, you're at the highest you've ever been, you're the highest ranking senior woman in the company, let it go, you're not going to go any higher. And I look back on all that now and you realize, of course, it's not about me. It's about the person speaking. It takes a lot to realize I know who I am. I think you have some self-doubt and so you project it onto others. Do you ever feel like the person most getting in your way is you? Do you have an inner voice that whispers, you can't do it? Welcome to Tiger Therapy. My name's Pippa Woodhead and I am no therapist, but I know firsthand that the big bad walls of career dreams are self-doubt and limiting beliefs. For the past few years, I've been interviewing business leaders about work and I have felt like an imposter for, well, a lot of these conversations. Each week, I'll be speaking to someone brilliant who's achieved success on their own terms. Join me as we hear about their life, their career journey, and find out what role, if any, self-doubt and limiting beliefs have played a part in their story. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of holding myself back. A key thing I'm learning is no matter where you come from, you get to choose your mindset. So lay back on the Tiger Therapy couch and let's meet today's guest. My guest today is Julia Stewart. When I was searching for guests with interesting stories for Tiger Therapy, Julia's journey was one I stumbled upon, and I haven't stopped telling people about her since. As a teenager, Julia worked as a waitress for IHOP, and over the years that followed, she worked her way up in various jobs in the restaurant industry to become president at Applebee's. Her goal was to become CEO of Applebee's, but she was turned down without explanation and so she quit. She was invited back to IHOP, where it all began, this time as CEO. Then she did the most badass thing ever. She raised the funds to acquire Applebee's and got to fire the man who turned her down. This became Dine Brands Global and made Julia CEO of the largest sit-down restaurant group in the world. After many successful years here, she left Dine Brands Global to found her own wellness company, Allurix, on a mission to enable wellness for all. I'm so excited for you to hear my conversation with Julia. Without further ado, here she is. Julia, I've thought a lot about where to start with this, and I would love to begin with the story that really got my attention and made me think, I have to speak to Julia Stewart. And that is the story where you were passed over for the role of CEO at Applebee's and then you went to IHOP. I would love to hear you tell this story. Wonderful. Sure. I had gone to Applebee's as president, but when in the interviewing process, it was made very clear to me that if I did exactly what they wanted done, which is to be part of a re-energizing of the brand, building the team, doing all the right things, that when that was completed, I would become CEO. And that seemed like a very fair and logical uh, way to go about it. So fortunately for me, I had an incredible team that I was able to put together, some of the finest individuals in the industry. We worked a very clear plan. Fortunately for us, the franchisees were very much agreeable to the plan. We set out with very clear vision of what needed to be done. And about three years into it, not only had we substantially increased sales and profits, but the brand had been re-energized in every aspect that you might imagine. So 
quite proud of the team and what we had accomplished. It happened to be my regularly scheduled meeting with the chairman and CEO. I went into his office for our regularly scheduled meeting and said, you know, I am really quite proud and showed the graph that showed the increase, talked about the success that we had had and said, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I think it's time to be CEO. And there was this long pregnant pause. He looked at me and said, no. And I thought he meant, well, no, not today. So of course I took out my notebook and I start immediately taking notes. And I said, well, what things specifically would you and the board like for me to demonstrate that perhaps I haven't demonstrated? And he said, no, not ever. And I said, is there an explanation? He said, no, I I don't need to give you one, but no, I'm not going to make you CEO. So I think it felt like someone punched me in the gut, but I, I really did need to just go home and sleep on it. I think it was one of those things where I think most of us were raised, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything. So I immediately <laughs> went home, had a lengthy conversation with myself, and came back the next day and said, you know, I think under the circumstances, it would be best that I left because the truth of the matter is I'm doing the work but you're not going to give me the title. And, and that's important to me. I want to be valued. I want to be respected. And he said, and I shall never forget this. Well, you can't possibly quit because if you quit, the stock will tank, which if you think about that for a second is a, a little counterintuitive. And so we worked out an arrangement where I would stay for a couple more months and there could be a, a logical transition. We could start messaging that I was leaving. And I immediately went to the local magazine that came out about the restaurant industry and let them know that I was leaving. And so the telephone started ringing and I began to interview even while I was still there. And uh, a couple months later, after a smooth transition and me leaving, I interviewed at multiple places. And this part of the story, I don't think you've heard, uh, 9-11 happened. And I was actually in a hotel. And of course, you can't move, you can't leave, you can't go anywhere. And so I, with I don't know how many other hundreds of guests at a Marriott hotel, joined in the lobby, watched in horror as we watched on television what was unfolding. And I looked down and I had gotten a phone call. And it was from, at the time, uh, the chairman of IHOP. And he said, are you safe? And I said, thank you so much for calling. I'm absolutely safe. He said, where are you? I said, I'm in a hotel lobby in in a Marriott. And he said, where? And I said, I'm in Calabasas, California. And after we exchanged pleasantries and talked about the horror, and he said, as long as you're safe, thank goodness. He said, well, there's only one place in Calabasas and you shouldn't go to work there. You should be working for us because he knew the other restaurant company that was based in Calabasas. So I said, well, I, I actually don't have an offer from you, and thank you very much, but we had just started the interview process. And he said, um, well, you have an offer now. And oh, by the way, I had said something in the course of the conversation about why he was calling, and he said, well, you're family. Anyone that we've met is family. And I remember that day thinking, yes, that's where I want to be. That's a company that cares about individuals not just the brand and sales and profit. And so the rest, as they say, is history. I went to work for IHOP. We obviously put it in writing that I would be made CEO within a couple of months. We learned that lesson. And so in very short order, I was CEO. And uh, it took a little bit longer to do the re-energizing of the brand at IHOP. There was a lot more involved. But again, great team, 
great group of franchisees. And when we went to celebrate our victory of being number one, we'd gone from number seven in the category to being number one. We were quite proud and quite pleased with what we had done. Interestingly enough, about that same time, I was literally reading the Wall Street Journal. In those days, you read the magazine. And uh, I'm reading on the front cover that Applebee's is going through some very difficult times and is looking at everything, including strategic alternatives, selling of the company. And so I reached out, made a phone call to the, at the time, banker that was representing them and said, look, I know this is a long shot and we've had our history, but I probably know it better than anybody. It could be a wonderful acquisition for us. We at the same time had been looking to make an acquisition. Given we had so much cash in our balance sheet, we had literally done a 180. When I say we were doing really well, we were doing really well. And so one thing led to another. We began the acquisition research work that one must do, did a significant amount of due diligence every step of the way involving the board of directors who was very supportive. And it took about nine months and we made the acquisition. IHOP bought Applebee's and I remember picking up the phone and calling the chairman of the board of Applebee's and saying, this is going to be a very short conversation, but we don't need two chairmen and we don't need two CEOs. I'm going to have to let you go. And he said, well, I was expecting this call. I said, I wish you nothing but well. And when I hung up, listen, you don't borrow $2.7 billion, you know, for revenge. But I must say there was about 30 seconds where it just felt right and good and just. And that's the story. I love it so much. It's such a brilliant story. You bought the company that turned you down. Now, obviously, along the way, I had a lot of support and a lot of team members that get a lot of credit for that. But at the end of the day, it was the right thing to do. And it is still to this day very much Dine Brands Global. And they have multiple brands and they work the synergy. There was a lot of reasons for that. I mean, it wasn't just out of that spite, but rather there was a lot of reasons to make the acquisition in terms of who and what they were and shared services. But it really is an interesting story. Yeah. And so one thing I've heard you mention in other interviews, and you didn't mention just then, is that you think the underlying reason that wasn't ever worded was that you were turned down because you were a woman. I certainly think that was part of it. And I certainly think I made him and others uncomfortable. I They'd never had a woman. They'd never had anybody in a senior leadership position who would challenge. And I think that was uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yeah. So one thing I thought when I first heard your story is how has this not been made into a movie yet? Well, I just want to go on record. I want to be played by Julia Roberts. That was going to be my question. Perfect. Oh my gosh. Okay. Maybe I'll write the screenplay. If no one does it in the next few years, I'll write it and I'll get Julia involved. (laughs) You've got it. Okay. A few years ago, you gave a commencement address at the University of Southern California. And I I watched this on YouTube and a brilliant speech. You talked about the importance of courage and you said, It's a a quality that must be nurtured and consistently tested or it dies. I really loved what you said about this. Can you share a bit more? Yeah, I've always felt very strongly that a part of, I'm a big believer in a plan, both personally and professionally. Mm. So fortunately for me, I had one in my 20s, 30s, and so forth. I'm a big believer. I still have it to this day. It's behind my desk. I changed it a couple of years ago, but I'm a big believer in, in work your plan. 
But whether it's professional or personal, I do believe this notion of courage, and sometimes it's tested in significant ways, sometimes it's little baby steps, but I believe you have to have the courage both to live your dreams, work your plan, have those difficult moments, have those proud moments, but I do think it takes a certain amount of personal courage. And what I've said that day to all those students graduated from college is, look, it's never going to be easy all the way. I hope no one's told you it's going to be easy all the way because it isn't. And I think my whole notion was you have to get up every morning and have choices. You have choices, but sometimes you have to have courage to take the either the path that isn't as well planned out or has stumbling blocks in it, or you have to take risk. And I think man or woman, young or old, that notion of making those assessments and taking the extra courage that it's going to take, having the difficult conversation, having the courage to say, you know, this is not right. And living your dream, I think for me, obviously not every single time did it work out, but more than ever, I think, as I look back and reflect, my courage enabled me to move on either in my career or personally, whether it was some difficult times or not. I think that that notion of, you know, you can do this. It's that positive speak you give to yourself, which I'm a big believer in. And we all go down the rabbit hole occasionally. It's the get back up as fast as possible and stay in that lane of courage that works you, I think, into a a better human being, if you will. Mm. Can I ask, how do you pick yourself up if you have a, a down day or you're not feeling as courageous as you might like? Well, I certainly remind myself of the plan, the master plan mm. I've made for myself. I think I remind myself, wait a minute, there are people who have it far worse. I mean, when you think about what we're seeing today in the world, pretty scary stuff. And I think to myself, I am upset about whatever. I'm disappointed in whatever. And then I do have to remind myself, wait a minute, let's put this all in the perspective that it needs and deserves. And I think that's a quick wake-up call, a very quick wake-up call for, wait a minute, I've seen worse. I've seen others go through far worse. I need to step back, take a break, take a deep breath, and remind myself of all the good and the positive. And this too shall pass. It always does. And that seems to work well for me. I mean, yes, there have been days it takes more than 10 minutes and a walk around the block to feel that way. But make no mistake about it. The sun does come up the next day right? There is another opportunity to either go around it or think another avenue to get success or to fix the problem. And I do think as far back as I can remember, even as a child, I was a problem solver. That's just, you know, I like to say it's in my wood. It's who I am. I like to problem solve and I rather find it intellectually stimulating. And sometimes the bigger the problem, the more the opportunity. That's great. Oh, a bit of a bit of perspective is a pretty powerful thing, right? Yeah. So you mentor young people and you have found that courage can often be lacking. Yeah, I always from the time I was at a point in my career where I had the opportunity, I always believed it was a privilege to lead. I always believed it was an honor to be able to help others. I'm really big on giving back. And this industry that I was in for so many years. It really does provide you the opportunity. Lots of people will reach out 
I didn't really have that in my younger days. And so I, I really want to give back. I think it's important. And it's interesting. I sort of talk to people from all walks of life. It Sometimes they're from the hotel business. Sometimes they're from the restaurant business. And sometimes, by the way, they have nothing to do with any of that. They're in a related field and they're they're just unhappy and they want to make choices and changes or they're just looking for, you know, I'm sort of stuck where I am and I'm trying to get out of it. And I will always start with the talk to me about your plan. I often find they don't have one. And so we'll work on the plan together. It's not my plan. It's their plan. What's important to them. And I oftentimes will find they have what you and I would call fairly simple blockades, things that are really stepping in their way. And when you really dissect it, it's not as big a deal as they've made it out to be. They've made it out to be a very large hurdle. And when we talk about it, when we really dissect what it is, it's almost never what they really actually thought it to be, or they realize they either have to go around it or think differently. And when I ask the question, why is it taken you so long? They'll talk about either the negative speak that's in their head, or they have surrounded themselves with people who are not particularly supportive, which is an interesting lesson in think long and hard about the people that are in your life. Yeah. And if they go in the downward spiral every time you talk to them, you have to ask yourself now, why are they in your life? That's been interesting as I've coached and mentored. I found that more than not, or a fear that if I begin thinking about another job or begin looking elsewhere, gosh, what if somebody finds out or I, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin I think it's not complacency. I want to be clear with you. It's not that. It's just this fear of the unknown that, you know, maybe it won't be better than what I have today. And maybe I should just stay and be miserable. But we do talk a lot about courage. And I think people think that word is so big and so robust. I think when you start breaking it down in its pieces and parts, it's little pieces and parts that add up to something much bigger. But really, it's not overwhelming once you really start talking about it. That's what I have found in the mentoring, the coaching has been very worthwhile, but always starting with the plan. And I, as I said, I often find people don't have a plan. Yeah. So it's the internal barriers, it's limiting beliefs, really. That Often. Mm. Or you'll ask people, so what is it about this person that you believe they aren't willing to take your feedback or What about this company that would suggest to you, I just know it to be? Well, can you give me examples? And oftentimes they can't. They just believe it to be this, well, it's the way it's always been. I would be afraid to go into my boss's office and have that difficult conversation. I'm not brave. So we dissect that. What about you makes you think you aren't brave? And inevitably, if I start asking questions, I will find they have all kinds of examples of being courageous and brave. They just forget. I love that. You know, on the topic of young people, if there are young people listening to this that just leaving college and you can pass on a piece of advice to them, what would that be? Well, I think in the beginning, I worried so much about making money and being independent. Not that I did anything I would regret or if I had it to do all over again, but I worried a lot about wanting to be self-sufficient. And in retrospect, 
you know, it all came together. But I think in the early days, I probably worried too much. But I think a lot of people coming out of college, especially today, think they have to have everything absolutely like a stepping stone. And I've got to go from point A to point B. And I often remind people the ladder to go to where you ultimately want to go may be a crooked ladder. It may go back and forth and sideways and even down. But again, it's about you getting experience, about taking some risks, about learning about yourself, about finding out what you like and what you don't like. And I often in those early coaching sessions will give examples of where I either made mistakes or learned the hard way. Because I, I kind of believe that if it's my mistake, I don't want you to repeat the same one. You have to create your own. So I'll tell people about, listen, we've all made those mistakes, but learn from them, grow from them. And I think there's almost a fear of making a mistake. Like, well, I don't want to do anything wrong. I don't think you can grow without making mistakes. So I think that's, um, we probably talk more about that with younger people than anything about making mistakes mm. and and having to do things that will make you uncomfortable, but you will grow from. I really relate to that. I I very much had that fear. I was scared that I was going to take the wrong job and it's going to take me in the wrong direction. But I mean, really, now I've had a very wiggly, zigzaggy ladder, (laughs) but it's been really, really wonderful as well. And, And, you know, I've thought quite a lot about what my advice would be you know, what, what advice would you give to your younger self or someone just starting out? And I've landed on the, the advice that I would give is find a way to make yourself a big fish in a small pond. Because when I finished university and then I went to London and was applying for jobs, I was applying for all of the, like the desirable junior jobs at the cool companies, which thousands of people just like me were applying for. And those jobs were almost impossible to get. And they usually paid terribly because they were desirable. And I did a few jobs that I hated. Then I actually ended up working in a restaurant. I think I told you this when um, when we first spoke a while yes. ago. So I ended up working in quite a fancy London restaurant as a maitre d'. And Julia, I absolutely loved it. I was there for almost two years. It was one of my favourite jobs ever. And I've heard you say that you just loved customer service. You loved being close to the customer. Can you talk to us a bit about this? So my first job, as you know, was an IHOP food server. So how ironic. Yeah. And I love that notion of, <laughs> you know, you have about 35 minutes to change somebody's mood or make them happy, or you could read the table and know when you walked in that people are like having a bad day, but I'm here to change that. And the notion of every day before you left, you would have a quick meeting with the manager. How did everything go? What worked? What didn't? How many refires did you have? There was something about that familial interaction that made me feel so good. And then after a while, regulars would start to say, well, I'll wait because I want her table. This notion of family. And I think it was the beginning of my notion of a leadership style that's sort of servant-based, that's I'm here to serve you. This notion of I'm here to help. And I think that has obviously served me very well throughout my career. But early on, I loved that interaction. I love that sense of family. I love that sense of knowing the team and feeling good about it. And that really did work for me. When I finished college, and of course I worked in restaurants throughout my college time, I ended up, my first job, right, was starting to work in the restaurant business. And early on, I thought, well, you know, this is kind of fun. I remember I had a marketing background, so I had gone to college with a marketing background. So I started on the marketing side. 
And I loved every minute of it. I loved learning and growing. And I began raising my hand and taking the assignments nobody wanted. I didn't care. You you don't want to do that? I'll do it. Sounds like fun. Sounds like a challenge. And so early on, it was the perfect mix of growing and learning and experimenting, but still at the same time, knowing I really thought this could be a, a future for me. And that's how it grew. It was an amazing set of stepping stones. However, when I would hit a brick wall or a glass ceiling, I just kept saying to myself, well, there's got to be other companies out there. Now, I started small in a small company and then began to go to larger companies. And by the time I was probably 15, 16 years into my career, then it didn't scare me anymore that it was this big company and all these people were applying. I'm like, hey, I've got all this experience. I think it's hard in this day and age starting out for people to think in terms of, so stay here. What is the statistic in the U.S.? Something like 80% of people out of college and their first job stay less than two years. It gives them an opportunity, but they don't necessarily have to stay there for the rest of their lives. And I think there's something to be said for garnering really great experience. And I even did this with my own children where my son was like, well, I've really enjoyed this and I'm having a good time and I, I don't know what's next. And I said, well, you need to manage people. Manage people? Yeah. You've done this great job as a single contributor. Now you have to raise your hand and ask if you can manage people. He said, well, I've never managed anybody in my life. And I said, well, let's let's talk about that. Let's figure out what does that look like? And of course, today he's obviously very successful. But it was that thinking differently about what's the next step. And now, of course, he has a plan, right? And we have worked on that plan together. But I would say there's nothing better than experience, even if it's small experience, to build up some of that confidence or something you really like, like you said, how much you loved that job and how much it it felt like, boy, this is where I meant to be. There's something to be said for that. So one thing one thing that I learned there, which I still think about quite often now, it was the most invaluable lesson for me, is that I have control to an extent over my mood. So I, it would be like a rainy, cold London day. I really don't want to leave the house. I don't want to go to work. And I'd be sort of... And then I would start the shift sort of fake smiling at customers. And then at one point... I would realize that my fake smile had become very genuine and I felt genuinely so happy and genuinely grateful to be there. And it's just something that, that I always think about, just fake smile. <laughs> and it might eventually turn real if you're not having the best day. <laughs> Listen, there's something gratifying about helping someone through that meal or they're having a bad day or they're having a great day and you're part of the success. Mm. But there is something about serving and making people feel good that for I can only speak for me was life-changing. I'm so glad. So when you were starting out in your career, you knew that you wanted to run something. That was something you had in your head that I want to run something. And I'm interested just to hear why you chose the restaurant industry because I know at that point there were no female CEOs. Uh, we talk a lot now about representation and why it's so important there's that quote, if you can't see it, you can't be it. Why did you choose the food industry? It's interesting that you say that because I knew early on I wanted to run something. I didn't know if it would be in the restaurant business. Mm. I knew I liked the restaurant business, but I think my plan was much more 
to run something. And early on, I wasn't certain that it would be the restaurant business because to your point, it was very much, to some degree still is at the top, a male-dominated uh, business. And I think the more I got into it, the more I thought to myself, well, now this is both something I enjoy doing, I'm good at it, and I think it is possible. But early on, I think just coming out of college, it it seemed natural and easy because I had done it in high school and college working in restaurants. It seemed logical. But I think early on, I didn't necessarily say to myself, oh, I'm going to stay in the restaurant business. And then as I got into it, I really realized I'm learning every aspect of this business, which was the plan, so that eventually I could be CEO. But in the beginning, I think it was more about taking on leadership roles and 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 items that required a certain amount of risk. There, there, there was some things I did over the years that were very risky, but they were very successful and it enabled me to sort of jump uh, fairly significantly. So, but I would tell you early on, it was more about wanting to run something not necessarily that it had to be, but over time, I realized, oh my gosh, yes, it has. Now, whoever knew that I would start out as an IHOP food server and end up at IHOP? I mean, that was sort of serendipity to a certain degree, but it, it all worked out. And the only other thing I would say is early on and certainly throughout my career, I did have naysayers who would say, well, it's never going to be there or you know, let's be honest, you've probably reached your pinnacle or, you know, I just don't think this is a very good company. You know, there's a lot of turnaround going on here. Boy, this is going to be a lot of work. Are you sure? Why don't you go with something? It's funny. I look back on all that now and all that did was make me have more conviction. I mean, it's kind of ironic. I I wanted it more (laughs) because there were people saying, "Hmm, probably not a good idea, probably not possible probably reached your pinnacle. And I think that just gave me more conviction. That's so enviable that that drives you. That for me makes me go, oh, okay, maybe they're right. <laughs> maybe I should go and hide under my duvet and not do anything. <laughs> I I wish I could tell you, I, I, you know, I'm an only child and my parents were teachers and it wasn't necessarily, I just early on, it's like, don't tell me I can't do that. That's just going to make me want to do it even more. I just think from early age, my dad says when he was alive, he recalls, he came home one day and I was organizing the entire neighborhood and I was in the fourth grade and I was organizing everyone about, okay, now you guys over here, you're going to be the A team. You guys are going to over here. You're going to be the Z team. We're going to work this out. Let's put on shows for the neighbor. I mean, I had this whole thing planned. And my dad just sort of stood there and said, where did this come from? I'm like, I don't know. Logic would tell you they needed to be organized. And I just sort of took the job and ran with it. And it just sort of, you know, went on from there. But he always tells the story. I'm not really sure I know where that came from. And And he, as I tell the story... He was sort of disappointed that I didn't become a teacher because my father believed it was the the noblest of professions. It is where you can add the greatest value. And he was a little disappointed in the beginning that I didn't choose that path. And I finally took him with me touring restaurants. This was in my Taco Bell days when I was running lots of Taco Bells. And I took him to an area of South Central LA and he just quietly watched and listened. We went to like six or seven restaurants. And then I took him out for a drink and I said, see, Pop, I do teach. I teach every day. I just don't do it in a classroom. I do it in a restaurant. I give people hope and courage 
I mentor, I coach, I develop. I just don't do it in a classroom, but I'm teaching every day. And I tell that story to this day. It still brings tears. He, he literally looked at me and said, you do teach. I owe you an apology. Teaching doesn't just have to be in a classroom. And from that day forward, he embraced the notion that I was in the restaurant business. But it, it took a long time for him to believe that if you didn't teach, you could still be okay. Yeah. You know, I saw you, I saw you tell that story. I think that was in the, um, your commencement speech that I mentioned earlier. You told that story. I teared up definitely when you, when you well, told it that definitely story. touches you. You want to make your parents proud. I certainly did. Yeah. But he just, it was hard for him to conceive. We're doing it every day. We're just doing it in a different way. But again, everybody has to find their own path. You know, that's the one thing, Pippa, it comes in many shapes and sizes. And I think the thing I'm proud of with coaching is I'm trying to get at what the core of who they are and what they want to be. And if they aren't, what what's the plan to get there? Uh, because so many of the people I coach and mentor have nothing to do with the restaurant business. They just want to find, to your point, what makes them happy what brings them joy. And sometimes it has nothing to do with money. Sometimes it does have things to do with money. But oftentimes, it's just finding that place in the world. And I think, and it brings me joy that these people, you know, years later are still calling me coach, and I'm still in their lives, because I've helped them find that path. And sometimes, not all the time, that path is really different than what they started out with, as you might well imagine. Yes. So uh, you've talked a few times about risk. And one thing I wanted to ask about, you've made a few pretty bold moves in your career. Just to focus on one of them, there was a point in your career where you were in a total dream job. You were chief marketing officer. You quit this to become an assistant restaurant general manager at Taco Bell. So uh, can you tell us about this? I mean, it's just a lot of going back to courage, a lot of courage to make such a big leap. And people around you must have been thinking, what is she doing? No, they thought I was crazy, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let me give you context. I had decided, as you said, I really wanted to run something. And I believed, right or wrong, from everything I had seen and heard, no one was ever going to make me CEO if I stayed in marketing, because marketing people spend the money, operators make the money. And so I had convinced myself, which is what really mattered, that I was going to have to leave marketing and go into operations somewhere. So I started with the company I was at very successfully, as you said, been chief marketing officer for several years, walked into the chairman's office and said, look, put me in coach. I'll go, uh, at that point, they had like six different restaurant divisions. I said, I'll go to any of them. I'll move anywhere. I'll do whatever it takes. But I really want to run operations. And I'll start wherever you want me to start. And he said, don't be ridiculous, Julia. You make way too much money for us in marketing. I can't make that change. And I said, no, I, I'm really serious. I, I really want to do this. This is important to me. And I have somebody I can replace myself with. I, I come from the school that says, have a successor ready to go. So you make it easy for the person you're going to, one of the many lessons. And he said, no, absolutely not. So I had read that Taco Bell Corporation was starting this thing called the Advanced Management Recruit Program, AMR program. And they were taking people from different walks of life who obviously were graduated and had been successful and turning them into operators. It was sort of an experiment. And they were talking about it in this article that they had hired a couple people from very serious different walks of life 
Harvard MBAs, and they were putting them in these positions. And it had mixed reviews, but by gosh, they were going to give it a shot. And so I thought that sounded like a great idea. So I reached out to the executive recruiter who I knew, and she said, you know, I just, I don't think that would be right for you. Now, you want to talk about somebody who's like, you said no. So about that very same time, this is a true story. We had won an award. The company and my team had won an award for great advertising in a particular category. So they were having this big awards banquet in Chicago. And I was going to go to this and accept the award on behalf of the agency and the company. I was quite excited. It was actually a very big deal. And I found out when I got to the event, I was literally checking in. It was one of those big hotel kind of setups, you know, lots of round tables and a cocktail reception and then the dinner. And when I went to check in, someone said, you know, the CEO of Taco Bell is here. And this light bulb went off and I'm like, seriously? And they said, oh yeah, John Martin's here. He's here with his marketing person. They're accepting a big award, same as you. So in the middle of cocktails, I said to this woman that was clearly in charge of the setting and organizing everything, the table numbers and whatever, I introduced myself and I said, you know, I just want to take a look at where I'm sitting. Would you mind terribly? And she said, of course not. Nobody was paying any attention. I walked into this room looked around, found my name badge, and found John Martins, the CEO of Taco Bell, which was at a different table. He's heard this story. He knows this. And I switched so I could oh, sit next it. to him. I did. I did it so fast. Oh, I, I, I think before I even had a chance to realize what I was doing, came back into the cocktail reception, got to the table, got to dinner, introduced myself, said I had heard about this advanced management recruit program. I was very excited, very interested Poor man couldn't get a word in edgewise. I talked the whole evening. <laughs> Two days later, I got a call to interview. The recruiter said, you know, we thought about it. We think this could work. And so I interviewed, got the position. Now, I knew I was an advanced management recruit. Certainly executives at the corporation knew I was an advanced management recruit, but the restaurant didn't. And they did that intentionally. Mm. So I got a uniform, which was the bow tie back then, the vest. I had the big keychain, And I literally went to work as an assistant restaurant general manager learning the business. Now, obviously, the object was to, to do more and, and get more experience. And I'll never forget after the first week, the general manager sat me down and said, you know, I think you might have a future in this business. I think it's looking very good for you. There, there's hope. I mean, you could really go places. <laughs> so I said, thank you so much. I worked in the restaurant and I began to understand in a whole different way. And that's when I think I really fell in love. And I really decided you really are sh a lot of the people in that restaurant. That was their first job. That was the very first job they'd ever had. You're really shaping an individual. You're really helping them with how they're going to show up for the rest of their lives for work. You're encouraging them. You're inspiring them. I loved it. And when they finally said, okay, it's time to move on, I almost didn't want to move because I had had so much fun. And all the stories, including the day I went to clean the walk-in, forgot to keep the door open, and I had like sort of some sort of cleaning solution passed out because, of course, you can't use that in a, in a closed-door environment. I mean, I have all kinds of stories, but I loved it. And I never forgot that time and that restaurant and I was there maybe six months and beginning to realize when people say things to me like, oh, you spent a lot of years as an executive in marketing, you couldn't possibly be an operator. I'm like, really? 
You actually think that, hmm, well, I completely disagree and I intend to prove it. And so they said, well, you don't have the, you don't have what it takes. You marketing people, you're all like, I'm like, really? Hmm. Put us all in a category. Okay. And so they said, well, you're not going to want to work New Year's Eve. I said, I certainly am. I'm perfectly capable. And so I started really getting into it. But it kept with me the rest of my life that, you know what, those people are working very, very hard and they deserve your respect and your credit and your support to do everything you can. And it carried with me. So I'm so glad I made that change. But yes, I'm not going to lie to you. People would come in and whisper, point, make fun. You know, here's Julia, this very successful person who's suddenly given up everything and she's gone mad. She's now an assistant general <laughs> manager. To talk. She's literally gone mad. But I look back on all that now. Yes, it was, I call it, you know, people say that, oh my God, the risk. And I'm like, yeah, it was a calculated risk. You know, I really had me convincing Taco Bell I was perfectly capable. Interestingly enough, a lot of those folks did not make it in the advanced management recruit program. I went on, went on, as you know, to run the entire country for franchise operations and loved it. But I look back on that now. Yes, it may have been a turning point and a high risk, but certainly worth it. I love it. An absolute risk taker, but really paid off. So, Julia, when I approached you for this interview and I explained the concept was about exploring self-doubt and limiting beliefs, you told me, oh, I'm not sure I'm the right person for this, Pippa, because I don't really feel self-doubt. <laughs> Can you tell us more? Yeah, that was really, when you first talked about that, I really did tell you, I thought you were a very nice person. It was a pleasure to meet you, but <laughs> really felt like I, I was going to let you down and, and didn't want to do that. I just, have I had moments? Absolutely. But in general, that's just not who I am. And someone asked me the other day, if you look back, what's the most difficult thing you've ever done? And, and certainly I've taken some serious risks. I've made some mistakes along the way, but I would tell you, I think probably the most challenged I've ever been is this, what I'm doing now, becoming an entrepreneur. I would tell you, I look back on all that now because it's been three years and the number of naysayers is worse than it was when I was in corporate America. I am shocked. And I, I sometimes repeat back what people are saying, and I'll give you an example. Private equity, I'll talk to private equity or VC about investing in the company and you'll hear people say, I'm sorry, you were incredibly successful. Why wouldn't you just go off into the sunset, live in Hawaii and relax and enjoy? You don't understand who I am. This is me relaxing and enjoying. <laughs> I am loving doing this. This is my passion. This is what I've always wanted to do. I have the opportunity to do so. You can either go with me on this path or you can choose not to, but make no mistake about it. This is me. And I, I think to myself, why would they say that? One of the things I've learned as I've gotten into this new world order of entrepreneurialism, it's sort of interesting, but in a, and I just bear with me in sort of a strange sort of way, it's really no different than along the way in corporate America where people would say you've reached a pinnacle. You're at the highest you've ever been. You're the highest ranking senior woman in the company. Let it go. You're not going to go any higher. And I look back on all that now and you realize, of course, it's not about me. It's about the person speaking. It takes a lot to realize I know who I am. I think you have some self-doubt. And so you project it onto others. And that has been sort of freeing for me in this new world order 
when people say that to me, and it's largely men, because largely in America, something like 96% or 98% of all money that's given to entrepreneurs is given to men in America. I don't think it's like that outside of the US, but inside the US, it's quite a problem. And it's really interesting to me, as I've really watched and reflected, that says everything about you. That doesn't say anything about me. It's about the person wanting to put you down or marginalize you or minimalize you that you have to ask yourself the question, where on earth does that come from? And I I will tell you this because this will never come back to me. I was meeting with a a young man the other day who, who really was a young man. And he was just starting out in his career in private equity. And I think what they would do is send people to him first. And then if he approved you, you would go on to the more senior partner. And he's just being as negative as could be. And what I wanted to say to him is, young man, I want to give you some coaching, like I'm your mother. I felt like saying to this young man, I don't know where you're coming from, but you're so negative. And I I think it made him proud that I I was going to say no to 100 people before I said yes. And I thought to myself, I just want to talk to your parents and tell them, you could be a better you. There's there's a better you in there somewhere. And I remember thinking, I, I don't have the time of day for you. But it made me realize this is what happens too often. People, and it's a little bit to what you said earlier, they hear. Mm-hmm. It reinforces maybe some own self-doubt. I, and I just run to the exact opposite. You can tell me that all day long. It doesn't change how I feel or what I want. And listen, I can cut this conversation short. If, you, if you're not interested, let's just part company and perhaps we'll agree to disagree, but I'm not going to change who and what I am. And it's sort of an interesting lesson in it's almost 100% about the person speaking that way than it ever is about you and your self-worth. And I, I think it gets all wrapped up in the negative speak I was talking about earlier. Yeah. People have a tendency to project their own limiting beliefs onto other people. Correct. When people tell me their dreams or their visions or their hopes, and probably we don't dream enough these days. We used to dream a lot more. I always want to say to people, I am so proud. I'm so excited. Gosh, tell me more. What an interesting or career changes or, you know, Julia, I've always want to be an artist. Let's talk about that. I think there is this sort of self that gets exaggerated by people talking back and saying, well, odds are not in your favor. Odds are absolutely in your favor because you have the tenacity and the drive and the passion. And I've had many conversations with people who come from communities that are underserved. And I've had those same discussions about, you have just as much right to be here as anyone else. And don't ever think differently about that. You get up and you show people your capability. You show people what you can do. And I think that limitation is often put upon by others in the room, not even necessarily by yourself. You know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. That's a big deal. The the amount of people who put their own negativity onto someone else, shame on them. Well, quite. Can you remember the moment where this idea came to you? I'm going to go and start a health brand. So it happened over time. And remember, I spent my whole career helping franchisees build their businesses, make more money, make more profit, recruit the right people, develop a long-term vision. But I always had that entrepreneurial spirit in me. I don't know how you can help others unless you have it. And I think what happened is by the time I would get to most brands, they were everyday indulgent brands. They were fairly successful by the time I was halfway through my career and I'm helping them become even more successful. 
But I watched as consumers enhanced their bad habits or didn't eat responsibly or didn't do what they could have done in those environments. And I would certainly try to do my part to help. But when you're already in a very successful everyday indulgent brand, it's hard to go backwards. And so I always thought, I wonder if I could eventually help people. When I started this whole notion of creating an app that would literally help people with behavior modification, it's going to take time and effort, but people willing to put the effort in. I have been overwhelmed by consumers saying, I can't wait till it comes out, which as you know, it comes out in January. And I think building up to that has been such a lesson in gratitude for realizing I've never faltered from the vision. I've never faltered from the plan. Maybe it's had to zig and zag, but I'm still so excited, probably more today than I've ever been because now we have all these experts working with us medical folks and physicians and experts. And what a joy to be around people like, oh my gosh, you're creating an app where I could help thousands. Right now, I only have 40 patients a week. I could make a real difference. So it's this notion of making a real difference and helping people who need a wellness journey and don't have one for whatever reasons, right? That's the biggest opportunity. But I think along the way, the entrepreneurial piece was probably always there. I think it was me watching people overindulge or not finding the right nutrition path or or talking to me over time about all their ailments and they didn't exercise, they didn't sleep, they would come to work. This notion was, you know, I could help people make a difference. It sort of came to me over time. And then I think when I finally said I want to do something else and I took some time off and really reflected, I just started talking I think before I started Lurics, I probably talked to 100 people. I either did informational interviews or I would talk to people. I would say, what, what, what's lacking in your life? And I cannot tell you the number of people who said, I, I don't have a healthy lifestyle. I don't have a good balance. You know, I have these issues. I wouldn't even know where to begin. I could possibly find a doctor who could help me. That's how it really started. Amazing. Do you think you'll ever retire? think you're someone that needs to keep going. No, I, I I don't. I think retire for me isn't in my vernacular. What I want to do, I'll eventually slow down and I'll have a chance to travel more, but this is too important to me. And I'm fortunate that I have a husband and a family who are incredibly supportive. I think they would think there's something wrong with me if I slow down too much. So I have to keep that pace to a certain degree, but it brings me joy. And if I'm healthy and it brings me joy, why wouldn't I? Again, this is about taking that notion of helping people and serving and taking it to a whole different level, which is their wellness journey. And you and I both know the whole industry is going through a transformation. It couldn't keep up with what our ailments are going to be in the next 20 years anyway. So creating a proactive lifestyle for people, which is what I'm trying to do, provides an opportunity and a pathway that I think is rich in rewards for the individuals. And that's what I'm really focused on. But Julia, you have had and are still having the most extraordinary career. Just as a almost last question, what question do people ask you the most? In my 40 plus years in the restaurant business, it was how did you ever get here? And how did you ever make that happen? How could you have a family and do this? It was always about the balance. They were always asking me, 
which I often found interesting because I think they asked women that question a lot more than they ever asked men. I don't remember the last time I ever heard a journalist say to a guy, well, how do you manage to do it all? But I would get asked that question all the time. And towards the end, I would say, please don't ask me that question. You can ask me whatever you want, but please don't ask me that question because they wouldn't ask a man that. I think when I got out of the restaurant business, 20 years as a public CEO is a long time. And so I get that they wanted to know how on earth could you have, they would say balance. I would use different words. But when I got into this, the entrepreneurial thing, I cannot tell you how many people said to me, why on earth would you do this? It's so much work and so much effort and so much time. Why on earth would you choose to do this? That's what I hear. And that's the single most asked question by private equity, VC. Now, close personal friends or acquaintances would never ask me that and and are almost kind of think it's it's sort of comical that people would ask me that. But I do think it's a very common. I had a guy say to me the other day, private equity firm, you know, I'm so used to meeting people who work out of their garage and are in their 20s. I'm not quite sure what to do with you. You're a seasoned savvy executive. You could probably teach us something. I'm, I'm not sure I can add any value here at all. I said, well, I could just take your money and we could just leave it at that. And I think he didn't get my humor. I'm <laughs> not sure he got my humor. But I do think the, the question early on and throughout my career in the restaurant space was, how do you possibly do this? How do you have balance? I, I don't know how you do it. I, there's no way in hell a woman who's married with children could ever do what you're doing which I find to be a somewhat insulting question if you really stop and think about it because I've never heard them ask a man that. Now it's much more about why on earth would you work this hard? Julie, I'm looking at the clock and I've taken up so much of your time and I'm so, so grateful. I just have one wrap-up question, if that's okay. And I'm asking everyone the same thing at the end. Can you nominate someone else to come on this podcast? Someone else who's having an extraordinary career or has an amazing growth story or someone that you would like to hear interviewed? I have so many people I know or would love to meet and would love to hear, you know, the how and the wherefore. If you wouldn't mind, I'm going to send you a list because I literally have so many people that I either don't know and would love to hear from or people I do know who I think would be extraordinary for you. And you would learn so much from. And let's be honest, Pippa, you've made it very easy today. So thank you. it's just been a fun conversation. But I do think there are a lot of people out there. I mean, the list just goes on. But I promise you, I will send you the list this week. Can't wait to see the list. Thank you so much. Well, Julie, I think you're so fantastic. And I'm so grateful for you taking the time to speak to me. Pippa, like I said, it's an art to do what you do. And you made it easy. So my sincere gratitude and for taking the time. And listen, it's just one story. There's a million out there. But if you help one person or you inspire one person, then you've made a difference. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Tiger Therapy. You made it to the end, which makes me so happy. I really hope you got something from this conversation. It would mean so much to me if you could subscribe to Tiger Therapy on whichever podcast platform you're listening on. The more subscribers we get, the more people will find us, and then the bigger and better guests we'll be able to have on. A big thank you to everyone who made this episode possible, including our brilliant guest and, of course, the team at Tiger Hall.